The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. A proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina, I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to go old school today. This is just like it was back in the day. For those of you who are new to the show, for the first six or seven years of this podcast. It was just Kobus and I every week, twice a week sometimes, uh, doing the show. This week, unfortunately, our guest had a conflict in their schedule, and then Giraud, who's our francophone editor, is regrettably under the weather. So, Kobus, we are going back to the old school, just the two of us, to discuss uh, a whole bunch of issues that was in part of a very busy week. So, buckle up. Okay, we've got three topics today, Kobus, that I want to get your take on. First, we're going to talk about the Kenyan elections and the election of president-elect William Ruto, and also about the China implications of that election. Then we're going to go to the, the standoff in the Democratic Republic of Congo between the government or the state-owned mining company Jacquemines and China Mali over a massive cobalt mine that's there. And then we're going to close our discussion with a special section, where in the world is Xi Jinping going? So that'll be our show today. Kobus, let's start with the Kenyan elections. Bring us up to speed this week on what happened. So the election results came out very, very close between between Raila Odinga and William Ruto. Um, and William Ruto has been, has been announced as a winner um, with 50.5% of, of the vote. Um, and now Raila Odinga is saying he's going to use legal and constitutional methods to to contest the result. Um, so we're going to have to see where that goes. Obviously, Kenya has a has a history of of particularly dating in two thousand seven uh, of really really uh, you know kind of bad um, post election violence. Um, so you know, kind of overall, the election has been really praised for for being very transparent. Um, now there's there's kind of you know all kinds of, of questions being raised about the process, um, and it looks like we we're kind of heading towards a kind of a messy messy kind of post election era, and, and it looks pretty tense in Kenya at the moment. In many ways, this is the worst case scenario that came out because it really cast doubt on the legitimacy of the vote because Odinga is going to challenge it. You know, sitting here from the United States looking at what's happening in Kenya, it seems quite familiar. Evenly split electorate, contested election. This is something that seems to be happening in other countries as well. It's going to challenge the mandate of Ruto and distract the government at a critical time right now, given the, the economic conditions that the country is under. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that, of course, raises China in, in, in the discussion. Um, both, of the, both of the candidates had anti-China tickets they, they were running on, um, with Ruta particularly kind of focusing on Chinese migrants who do kind of low, low-wage jobs in, in, in Kenya. Um, so Ruta himself came up from, from um, humble beginnings. Um, sorry, hang on one moment, this computer thing. Um, 
Sorry about that. Um, I'll, I'll just retake that. Ruto himself came from humble beginnings. He, he, he famously sold chickens by the side of the road as a child, um, before then becoming this, this massive mogul, like multi-platform mogul. Um, so he was running, you know, on this what came to be known as this kind of shorthand um, called hustlers versus dynasties, referring to the fact that that both the president and um, and Raila Odinga uh, came from from political dynasties within Kenya. Um, so it was it was it was an interesting kind of race in the sense that he didn't, unlike previous Kenyan elections, he didn't try to appeal to ethnic divisions and rather. Appeal to economic divisions. He was he was particularly speaking about about young people who find it difficult to get jobs and and who find it difficult to to make it up up the ladder. So you know, kind of, and I think that's a very sympathetic message. Uh, you know, kind of, I expect that to be a, a big message in, in in future elections in South Africa too. Um, you know, but but at the same time, it then also you know it it raises all of these questions about about how it's going to work, you know, kind of like now, now, you know, kind of after the election process. Well, let's talk about the China angle in this election. As you mentioned in the campaign, both Rutu and Odinga made China a campaign issue. We can't say that it was a very big campaign issue, but it was a campaign issue, no doubt. They, they brought it up. And let's talk about the four issues that I identified earlier this week in our coverage of this, and I'd like to get your take on it. Uh, we were challenged by one of our readers on one of these issues, so let's kind of go through them. Number one, debt. Clearly, China is a very important player in Kenya's debt situation. It's the largest bilateral creditor. Overall, it only has about 8-9% of Kenya's total public debt. But still, nonetheless, in the bilateral sense and in the external sense, it's a very big player. So, Debt is going to be one of the issues, and I think that the new president, whoever it is, let's assume for now that it's Ruto, is going to have to sit it down with the Chinese embassy and the China Exim Bank and try to negotiate another debt deferral deal to ease off some of the payments because there is a capital shortage problem in Kenya right now. Obviously, there is a lot of pressure on the economy and freeing up some of that, that capital that's going out to repay the debt would be better used at home. So number one is debt. Number two is trade. Now, this was an area where I was challenged earlier this week. I'd like to get your take on this, that I suggested that having the massive trade imbalances, Kenya exports about $150 million a year to China, imports more than $3 billion a year. Uh, an expert on trade said, Eric, you got that totally wrong. That's actually not a problem. So let's take kind of trade off the, the table for now. The other two main issues that Ruto brought up, and this was a very, very big one that he did in an interview with, with Reuters, he said he will release the contracts for the standard gauge railway. That has been a sticking point. Even though the High Court of Mombasa ruled that the, those, the contracts have to be released, that was back in, I think, May or June. We still have not seen the contracts for that. He said he will publish those contracts, all contracts with the Chinese. And then the point that you brought up is on immigrants, and he is going to crack down and deport all illegal Chinese immigrants in Kenya. And I mentioned in a TV interview this week, I said, if you are a Chinese national in Kenya and you do not have your papers all sorted out, you should probably be thinking about some alternative places to live. Because my guess is that one of the first things that Rutu is going to do is send the immigration authorities into the Chinese community to check papers. Yeah, I can imagine that because it's also it's kind of low hanging fruit politically. Um, you know, the the issue about the the contracts are very interesting. is is very interesting. It'll be interesting to see whether he actually does it. 
Um, you know, one needs to keep in mind, of course, that he was vice president during the time when these, when many of these contracts were signed. You know, so it's not like he was kind of stuck at home, powerless to do anything about it. You know, um, so so it's um, so it's it'll be you know kind of it'll be interesting to see if it actually happens and then what is revealed because you know that 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 standard gauge standard gauge railway contract has been has been the holy grail you know for transparency people for a long time. Um, so, you know, kind of whether there's anything surprising or revealing, you know, kind of that we don't already know, that contract will also be interesting to see. Well, this is one of the key points, and I think you're, you're touching on this, that when you lift up the rock, you're going to see all the bugs. And a lot of people in Kenya probably made a lot of money off this contract that they shouldn't have. And so the pressure to keep the contract under seal is not coming from the Chinese, as far as we can see. This is coming from the Kenyans. And my suspicion is that it's going to reveal a level of incompetency that people don't want to show. That's my that's my guess, is that this was a very poorly done contract in the part of the Kenyans, and that's why they're reluctant to reveal it. That's my guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of I can imagine it might there might be some embarrassing stuff on the Chinese side as well, you know, kind of particularly revealing kind of business practices in terms of how people how companies get get officials on board. Um, you know, so so but we'll have to see whether it actually happens. Um you know, like I, I can well imagine that that it that it releasing it might be be less appealing once one is actually in office. Now, what do you think is going to happen on the debt issue? Because we've just seen the Chinese make some progress in Zambia, working as the co-chair of the Zambian Creditor Committee, and actually canceling some debts in Zambia. Now, I can imagine that people in Kenya are like, "Ooh, that sounds cool. I'd like to have some of our debts canceled too." Now, Kenya's in a very different situation than Zambia is. But I'm wondering that, let's say, President Ruto, when he moves into office, again, we're going on the assumption that he's going to be the president, and he sits down with the Chinese ambassador, the head of the China Exim Bank, and so forth. And he says, listen, I need to do something. Help me out here. What do you think the Chinese are going to do based on what we've seen over the past year? I mean, in general... Again, you know, kind of no no Chinese data expert me, but um, you know, in, in general, what what we um, you know the what we've seen is like part of the re- the reluctance from from um, Chinese lenders to uh, to allow debt rescheduling um, is due to um, to not wanting to set precedents, um, you know, because obviously China has so much debt all over the world. Um, you know they don't want to want to kind of open up a, a series of, of of renegotiation processes. So I can well imagine they might they might say, sure, you know, kind of we can discuss it, but you would have to join join the G20's common framework or work through the IMF or you know like so, you know kind of like force them into into a, or like suggest a route that that Kenya would likely not want to take um, you know in order to in order to 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 kind of cover their end what what do you think well Kenya was notorious for being reluctant to join the G20's back then it was called the DSSI which is the debt service suspension initiative that later became the common framework Kenya is not a part of it so so far, only three countries are part of the common framework. I think it's Ethiopia, Chad, and Zambia. So Zambia, in many ways, was this key test case. So by you know, having the Chinese push them into the G20 process, sounds like something the Chinese would do. But at the end of the day, what I think the Kenyans are going to get, the most they're going to get, is not going to be a cancellation, but it might be, again, some more deferrals one to two years. This is what they did in Angola. They pushed back some of the repayments for a couple of years, just to give some breathing room. I don't see them canceling the debt. 
One other interesting point that we've had discussions internally at the China Global South Project is with our China researchers who are noticing that within the discourse in China, there is split opinion on debt. That quite a few people say, you know what, China should be magnanimous, it should be a global leader, it should forgive debts, it should go out there and be, uh, you, you know, challenge the perception that it has as the predatory lender. And then there's quite a bit of discussion on social media and in public opinion that says, uh-uh, we should not give them anything, we should crack down, we should get all of our money back. What have you thought about those discourses and those debates that we've been hearing about in China on debt? It's revealing, you know, um, it's 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 two parts of this of, of of two sides of the same coin in some kind of way in the sense that it's it's both a kind of a you know like for for me it seems it's 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 two two different kind of talking points from a population that's still getting used to having a really big international influence um you know so so and you know the to a certain extent the except for for these kind of moments in for example in, in american elections when you know kind of when um when people are trying to trying to make a point like you know kind of the, like donald trump did for example like saying that you know kind of america's spending so much money around the world like in like in large part that kind of aid you know kind of aid spending lives in you know, kind of in multilateral institutions and lives like you know away from away from the citizenry. You know, um, and it's become kind of normalized as part of part of the the kind of U.S.'s kind of international economic position. Um, in China, I think it, it a lot of for a lot of people it feels newer, and and because it's so it, it's 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 more directly linked to China itself, to the position of China itself in the world, and particularly its its changing position. So, um, you know, so and, and I can well imagine that it then gets filtered through domestic narratives of how China, you know, kind of got to where it is, you know, kind of we worked very hard, we ate all, all you know, we ate all this bitterness, you know, in order to get where we are, and therefore, you know, um, and therefore, then after that, therefore, we one then has those two opinions. You know, China should therefore be nicer to these developing countries and and kind of help them and and, and support them, or they should be like us and they should also work hard and they you know kind of zero tolerance. You know, so so a lot of it seems to be like kind of like working out the kind of nitty gritty of what it's going to mean for China to be an international an international power. Um, what, what do you think? Well, it's interesting because for anybody who follows the nationalist, populist, right-wing discourses in the United States and Europe, where there is the America first or Europe first and the xenophobic type of approach and this very um, you know isolationist view of the world, uh, they'll recognize a lot of the discussion in China and this idea of why are we helping the people of Sri Lanka when we have people here who need help. There is that same thread that comes up, and I thought that was very interesting. So in many ways, I think the discussion in China is far more complex than I think a lot of people on the outside assume, because again, we oftentimes regard China in very monolithic terms. And so it's interesting to see these 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 cleavages in public opinion on an issue like debt that don't get a lot of external coverage, because a lot of it's just happening on WeChat and Weibo, which for the most part goes uncovered by most of the English language press. So that's something that we've been picking up and our Chinese researchers are, are following quite closely. Yeah, I, I would add to that that on both sides, I think both in China and in, in kind of Europe and the US, there's, there's some very significant blind spots in that discussion as well. Not least of which the how fundamentally dependent on, on well, it, it, in the Chinese case, particularly how, how dependent China, Chinese growth has been on commodities from the global south. 
And, you know, the, you know in, in classic Marxist terms, you know, the commodity tends to erase its own labor history. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's very easy to think of those commodities as somehow separate from the people of those countries. And, you know, I've, you know, to think about, you know, to, to think separately about, about the labor it took for those, for those commodities to be excavated versus the help that those countries need. Um, you know, so, so it's very easy for a country like China now, newly risen, you know, kind of in the world, to think of, of, of all of the work that it took China to get there and not think about the work that it took, the, you know, the, that it took the people to send the stuff that China used to build the stuff to get there. You know what I mean? So, and, and that very sim- there's a very similar kind of like blind spot in those discussions in Europe and the US as well. So very quickly, another key event this week on the debt issue. If you're interested in a very nuanced, detailed articulation of China's position on the debt trap narrative, I highly recommend that you take a look at a new paper that came out by Professor Tang Xiaoyang from Tsinghua University. It's a 68-page rebuttal on the predatory lending narrative. And this is an evolution of what we've seen over the past six months of China refining its arguments against the debt trap narrative. In many ways, this is the apex of it because he laid it out and he really went to town. And it's a very interesting paper, I have to say. Very, very interesting because, again, it's it's devoid of a lot of the ideological a shrill kind of screaming and yelling that you see typically in this discourse between China and India and China and the West. And he really made a very interesting case about the cost of debt from uh, private lenders in the U.S. and Europe versus what China has been doing with its concessional lending, not necessarily its commercial lending, but its concessional lending. Very, very interesting paper. We have links to that on our website. There was no website available with it. There's a Google Doc that's circulating that you can download the paper on. So if you want to find that, go to our website, chinaglobalsouth.com. We're going to try to get Professor Tang to come back on the show and talk about that because it's very relevant to what we were talking about in Kenya. Kobus, let's now move on to our second topic in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The TFM mine is an issue that we've been following for the past year. If you're not familiar with the TFM mine, this is the world's largest cobalt and copper mine. Last year, 10% of all the globe's cobalt came from this one mine in the Southern Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, there's been a long-standing dispute between the Chinese operators of the mine and the Congolese state-owned mining company, Jekamines. Jekamines contends that when the deal for this mine was made, that China Mali, who's also known as CMOC, understated the reserves. And that is really at the, at the essence of this dispute. Now, the dispute has escalated over the past six months. And there's been back and forth in terms of a temporary administrator has been assigned to it. Then there was rumors that production had shut down. That apparently not had happened. The latest news now is that Prime Minister Jean-Michel Samalukonde is going to get involved in trying to mediate the dispute because it has escalated now to a very dangerous situation in the sense that trucks now are apparently being blocked from leaving the country with TFM cobalt in it. So this is really now becoming a crisis situation for CMOC and potentially for uh, the world because of the dependence that everybody has on this particular mine and, and, and Congolese cobalt in general. You wrote about this with uh, Giro earlier this week. Tell us a little bit more of, of what you and Giro discussed. So, you know, I, um, I interviewed Giro essentially, or like asked him a few questions, in, you know, for, for our newsletter. Um, just, as, just his initial responses to this announcement that the Prime Minister is going to be mediating. 
Um, he essentially said that that everyone is is, is hoping to move along. Um, but they're hoping to move along in different directions, which makes it which makes it a difficult situation. Um, but the so so in, from from the CMOX side, he says what they what they essentially the best they can really hope for is for is for this these royalties that are that the Jacobin are, are um, demanding. So it's around seven billion dollars in 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 this in in what what they feel should have been paid to them based on what they now say are more realistic kind of gauging of, of of the cobalt reserves at the mine um, and so so he was saying um, CMOC essentially is hoping for a reduction of that of that um, of that amount and then some kind of of repayment plan um, but at the same time CMOC also has a lot of um, a lot of kind of political clout of their own in the DRC They're, they've been they've been very canny in, 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 in how they like the kind of allies they, they gather. So you know, so for a long time, for example, like it, it the, the Jacobin officials found themselves barred from the from um, from the mine by uh, by armed soldiers. You know, kind of, and who knows who who ordered them to be there. So um, you know, now there's a similar kind of this the the, the blockade that you mentioned is a similar kind of tactic. Um, you know, to to kind of put to put. Pressure on on CMOC. Um, the the big issue, though, that 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 he also mentioned is that the like in this particular issue, the prime minister doesn't necessarily have that much leverage. Um, you know, he he might not have the kind of political power to make all of these people um, play ball. Um, you know, which means that it that we we might be in for a longer a longer kind of process. Well, there's no doubt that we're in for a very complex process, and unlike most countries where the president and the prime minister have a lot of power. In the DRC, that is not the case. They have power over certain factions. They have power over certain elements of the military, but they don't have full power. So even though CMOC, as you pointed out, has been very, very savvy in their dealings with both Prime Minister Lukunde and also with President Felix Chesikedi, uh, at the end of the day, they have to deal with people also in Lualaba province down in southern DRC. The provincial leaders have a lot of power. The mining bosses have a lot of power. So there are factions all over it's interesting, though, Kobus, that this dispute flared up again in the Congo the same week that there's been a lot of talk in the United States about the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the new climate bill that was passed in the United States. There's a key provision in that bill, which is to onshore or to eliminate dependence on Chinese supply chains for strategic resources. And that is French for let's not rely on the TFM mine anymore for cobalt. Because how can you, you know, onshore cobalt when 60 to 70 percent of the world's cobalt supplies are in the Congo and the Chinese control a good 40 to 50 percent of that? So there's a big discussion going on in the United States today about how to uh, rid yourself of the Chinese in the supply chain. At the same time, I just don't see how that can actually happen, given the concentration of cobalt in the DRC. At the same time, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was just in the DRC, it doesn't seem like he focused on cobalt when he was there. And I was a little bit surprised that there wasn't a bigger discussion about strategic resources in Secretary Blinken's visit to the DRC. He focused mostly on the Rwanda-DRC conflict, but I didn't see a lot of headlines coming out about cobalt. At the end of the day, it, cobalt is the thing that powers all these beautiful Teslas driving around the US and Europe. And for now, they have the first stages of cobalt-free batteries, but those batteries are not as powerful 
as the cobalt battery. So we are stuck with a situation where we're dependent on cobalt for at least the next maybe five to 10 years. And that means this dispute in the Southern DRC is absolutely critical to all of the plans to the green mobilization, the green tech, the green mobility revolution, whatever you want to call it, they got to figure this thing out. Otherwise, the price of cobalt and batteries and cars is going to stay very high. You know, it was it was very revealing um, that, as we discussed in a previous episode, um, you know, the, that there were deals coming through um, from American companies like Ford um, to buy batteries in China, presumably con- some of those batteries containing Congolese cobalt, at a moment when the U.S. government was pushing so hard for onshoring of, of these supply chains. Um, you know, and this was true for Tesla as well. Um, so, you know, it, it does give you a, a kind, of, kind of a strong idea of, of, um, of how kind of U.S. industry and U.S. US government are, are pulling in different directions on this particular issue. Um, I, can, I can well imagine there must be an arms race in the battery world to try and kind of get rid of cobalt. Um, and that's the kind of downside for, for a country like the DRC. You know, because on the one hand, having this resource makes it makes gives it a, quite a lot of leverage. But they are, on the other hand, you know, kind of now I think everyone is racing to try and kind of eliminate cobalt because dealing with the DRC is, is such a handful. That might be the case, but the DRC is both blessed and cursed with so much of everything. So cobalt is just one of the many resources that it is in amazing abundance. They've also discovered lithium, which is another critical element for battery metals as well. So there is so much that comes out of the DRC. Here's the issue, though, and this is what's interesting about this unhappy marriage between Jacquemines and Simok. There's nobody else. I mean, the U.S. and the Europeans can talk a great game about providing alternatives to the Chinese in places like the DRC, but I don't see any not a single one of their mining companies lining up to replace CMOC. So at the end of the day, I think the Congolese recognize that the Chinese are the only game in town. There is no other option for them. Well, I guess, I mean, Glencore still maintains a very big presence there, you know. They do, but not in this particular instance. They, Glencore has made it clear that they don't want to invest 3 to $4 billion in, in TFM to buy it over. Yeah, and I mean, no one is clamoring to, to, uh, to locate refining in the Congo, which is, which is one of the things that, that the, the Congolese government wants. But, you know, kind of that, that will be an even tougher, tougher issue, I think. You simply can't put refining in the Congo because you don't have the stable power supplies that you need. And this has been really the success of Indonesia. And one of the things that we're trying to do on the show is to find an Indonesian mining expert because Indonesia has done an exceptionally good job at moving up the value chain by requiring processing of minerals and raw materials prior to export, and especially in the nickel and the bauxite sectors. And I think there's really some interesting case studies that African governments can learn from Indonesia. And so I'm looking to find an Indonesian mining expert. So if anybody's listening to the show can recommend an Indonesian mining expert that can join us to explain what the Indonesians have done and how it might be a model for what other developing countries can do, uh, that's something we would like to explore. Let's wrap up our discussion now with where in the world is Xi Jinping going? Twitter was a flutter last week with a report from The Guardian's Martin Chuloff, who said, 
Now, this was two weeks ago he wrote this story, and he was the only one. Martin Juloff, by the way, if you're not familiar with him, is a very experienced Middle East correspondent for The Guardian. And he said Chinese President Xi Jinping is going to make his first visit overseas since the beginning of the pandemic. Back in 2020, he went to Myanmar. That was his last time out of the country. I'm not counting his recent visit to Hong Kong as leaving the country. So President Xi has not left the country since the beginning of the pandemic. And they said his first visit was going to be to Saudi Arabia this week. And they were going to make this big grand fete and this big grand celebration. At first, everybody was like, wow, okay. And it just went with it. It was amazing how fast everybody picked up on this one Guardian report. That's it. Nobody else had this information except the Guardian guy. And I just felt like, oof, this feels weird to me. So then I reached out to some contacts in Riyadh and I started saying, what do you think is going on here? And they were like, nobody else has this information. No other media has this information. We're not hearing anything about it. And they told me to wait. And so I published a tweet with the Guardian story and then about 10 minutes later took the tweet down because I didn't feel 100% comfortable with the story. That was probably a good decision in the end based on the fact that we are now recording at the end of the week And Xi Jinping is still in Beijing. He never went to Saudi Arabia this week. One other very important clue here. There's a guy by the name of Wang Cheng, and he is a commerce ministry official on Twitter. He's one of the better guys to follow on Twitter. I'll put his Twitter handle in the show notes for you. From the beginning on Monday, he said, this is BS. Don't listen to it. And he's got a lot of experience in the the Middle East. And so on Monday's newsletter, I was very, very negative on the trip. Then by Tuesday, the Jerusalem Post started picking up indications that there were uh, indications in Riyadh that preparations were underway for Xi's arrival. And then we started seeing on Chinese Twitter and also in Chinese social media from Chinese sources in Riyadh that they had started blocking off streets. They were doing uh, preparations for the Royal Guard. They were doing ceremonial preparations for Xi's arrival. So then by Tuesday, I was like, hmm, maybe this actually will happen. And then by Wednesday and Thursday, I was I became more and more uh, skeptical. And of course, the week ends uh, at Thursday at five o'clock in the Middle East and in Saudi Arabia. And at Thursday at five o'clock, there was no sight of Xi. Now, he may go next week, unlikely as it is, and we'll get into why it's unlikely. But Kobus, what did you think of this of this discussion about Xi and his travels? It was quite funny for me. It's very, it's very interesting. This, this kind of like global fixation on when he's going to leave the country. Um, you know, it, it makes sense because you know it, it has been hundreds and hundreds of days. Um, you know, you know, like one one of the points that you made was that you know this is this is an awkward moment for him to travel um, because there's such uh, such kind of like economic ructions within China. You know, kind of there's there's you know there's a lot of there's you know ongoing kind of banking issues, the real estate scandals and so on, all happening. You know, kind of in the run up to to him taking on uh, this unprecedented third term. So you made the point that that it would make a lot more sense for him to have a triumphant travel right after assuming the third term, rather than in the kind of unsure time beforehand. You know, and that does make a lot of sense to me. It does depend on the domestic politics. So there's two lines of thought on this that people inside China were talking about. One is that if he leaves now, it really shows that he's wrapped up all of the politics. That all of his 
All of his rivals have been taken care of. All of his supporters are in the right spot. So leading up to the 20th Party Congress in November, everything is buttoned up. Okay, so then people started to ask, why would she want to make a trip now of all times? And so from the people that we spoke with, here are some of the theories. Again, this is reading tea leaves here. If anybody says with any amount of confidence that they know about this, they're lying to you. So I'm just going to put a few ideas out there. I have no idea if they're true or not. But let's just kind of consider some of the options. Number one, this is what folks were saying, and this is what a couple folks told me, that he wants to send a message to Vladimir Putin on this that says, don't get too comfortable with us buying so much of your oil. I've got options. So this was a play against Putin. That was one, one suggestion. Another suggestion of why the urgency to go to Saudi Arabia today is because he saw what happened with Russia and the sanctions, and that with the rapid escalation of the tensions in the Taiwan Strait, he is worried that if there is a conflict with the United States over Taiwan, that he will be sanctioned out. And he wants to secure oil supplies now in advance in order to be able to buffer against possible future sanctions. Again, this is all speculation. I'm not entirely sure. Another thought that came up, which was uh, from an observer, was that there's a wag the dog kind of thing going on here, is that he does not want to have the focus uh, going into the 20th Party Congress to be on conflict with the United States and the issue in the Taiwan Strait. And there's no better way for a leader to change the subject than to go abroad. This is a well-worn tactic that the American president has used for a very long time, that when things are crappy at home, they head overseas and they change the conversation. I thought that was kind of interesting. And then the last one, of course, is that this is a way to stick it to the Americans, that Joe Biden had his visit to Riyadh to meet with the the crown prince. It was a very low-key visit. And one of the messages that came out of The Guardian's story was this whole idea of the big celebration. And the idea was to show it as a contrast to the Americans who had a very low-key, understated visit. I thought that was a complete BS line by Martin Chuloff, and, that he, and I think he got played by the Saudis on this one, because the Saudis, what they're trying to do, and we have to understand their agenda in all of this, is they're trying to play the Americans and Chinese off each other. And they're trying to say to the Americans, see, you guys came over here, your president, you know, Biden, he didn't really want to be here. He thinks it sucks to come to Saudi Arabia because you think that we're crappy on human rights. You have all this domestic political pressure. Well, when the Chinese come, we're going to throw a big ass party, right? That's the Saudis saying this, okay? The Americans intentionally went to Saudi Arabia in demanding a low key because the politics here hate the fact that the Americans have to go to Saudi Arabia. The Americans hate the relationship with the Saudis. They, they, they just, it makes them so squeamish. And so I think that we have all of these different dynamics at play here. Last point I'll make on this. The Wall Street Journal, at the same week that Martin Chuloff wrote his Guardian piece, published a story that said that uh, she is going to make his triumphant return to the international stage after the 20th Party Congress. He's going to go to the G20 summit in Bali first. Then he's going to do the APEC summit after that. And then he's going to have a meeting with Biden. That makes a lot of sense because he'll have this mandate of the third term. He's not going to travel before November. And then I heard just yesterday from a source that she is actually planning to go to Saudi Arabia in December, not now. That's why we're saying where in the world is Xi Jinping going? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, I I can imagine that so much depends on on how that that party congress goes. Um, 
you know, and and you know, like again, I mean, this is such like deep levels of Chinese politics that who knows what's going on there. But you know, it would be, you know, I, I can imagine that that this is a this is a, a tricky time for him to leave, uh, unless he's as you say, unless he's leaving tactically. Um, you know, um, so yeah, you know, kind of, but, but the the one the one thing that was very interesting for me um, with with all of this was was to realize that China's trade with Saudi Arabia now is standing at about sixty five billion dollars, compared to the U.S.'s trade with Saudi Arabia is about nineteen billion. Um, so you know, kind of, this, it's it, it's interesting to 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 know that China is now like more than three times the trade that Saudi Arabia does with the U.S. Um, you know, which of course doesn't. You know, there's many other complicated parts of that relationship of of both side, relationships on both sides. But um, but you know, at, at the same time, this is also coming. The discussion of the of of the of the possible visit is coming in the wake of this of this big new deal that that Sinopec um, signed with Saudi Aramco, where they're going to be working on a whole bunch of things. You know, a lot of new oil work and then a lot of like potential post of oil work including including like hydrogen and carbon capture and so on so um you know and and keep in mind that Saudi Aramco is the the single largest corporate polluter in the world um you know so it's so it all it's, it's all very interesting you know kind of it's all um you know kind of the like how how all of the how our kind of like hydrocarbon future is going to play out is going to be decided in these meetings um you know so so it's it's like there's a there's a climate angle to all of this is fascinating and and worrying um you know and um, yeah we'll, we'll have to see I, I i tend to i tend to also bet that that it would make more sense for him to go later that's right well speaking of hydrocarbons a couple points on this before we go number one is that oil prices fell to 90 dollars a barrel earlier this week in part because of two key factors one Chinese economic data came out, and that was both on retail sales and production output were down sharply. A lot of people said, uh-oh, this is not good. That's another reason why she's got big problems going into the 20th Party Congress. He's got to get this economy stabilized. It's not being helped by the fact that China's experiencing massive, massive heat waves. So we're seeing the same kinds of heat waves in southwestern China that we are seeing in parts of Europe and certainly here in the United States and other parts of the world. It's been over 40 degrees, something like for 10 days straight. That's, I think, more than 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And what the problem is here, Kobus, and this is a point that you've brought up on a number of occasions in the context of Africa, is that China depends disproportionately on hydroelectric. Well, so many of the rivers and the, the, the dams that have been powering the hydroelectric uh, generators in, in much of Western China for Chongqing, Chengdu, these are these big industrial zones in southwestern China, they have, they've run dry and they have power shortages. Guess what the Chinese are now going to turn to? Guess what they're going to do? They're going to fire up coal, massive, massive amounts of coal because they can't afford to have their industries offline, especially with the economy slowing down. Already factories in some parts of Chengdu have had to close for six or seven straight days. That is terrible news for Xi Jinping going into the 20th Party Congress. So now we have a situation on coal where the Germans have turned back to coal, the Japanese have turned back to coal, the Chinese are going into coal, and everybody is talking about just transitions for Africa. I mean, it is just such BS, all of this climate rhetoric that comes out of the North. But when they're pushed against the wall, 
all of the principles of climate change and clean, green transition and all that gobbledygook coming out of COP27 just goes out the door. I am just so frustrated by all of the hypocrisy that you see coming out of all these big countries that when their back's against the wall, they go right back to coal. Yeah, like it, 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 you know, it gave me real kind of like grim satisfaction to see all of this happening because like one of, one of the, the key ways, the, one of the key kind of like, like the basis kind of factor that, that drives so much discourse coming out of Europe and the United States um, and out of China you know, in, in relation to Africa, in terms of like helping Africa, assisting Africa, comes from this basis of we are more modern than you. You know, kind of like our, like it, it's all based on this claim to modernity. This is this kind of claim, you know, kind of like, well, we we sorted that stuff out and now, you know, kind of you need to get to get with the program, you know. And yet this entire claim of modernity, the entire like European idea that they're so, so, so advanced, the entire idea of like the US as like the, the most advanced country in the world, the entire idea of China as a rising superpower, all based on 19th century technology. It's like there is no claim for modernity. There is no claim for like a modern Europe, a modern US, a modern China. That is nonsense. It's all 19th century technology. It's just, yeah, I mean, it, we're going to do a lot more climate coverage in the coming six months to a year. And part of what I want to do with our coverage is to really bring the the contrast between the reality on the ground in many parts of Africa, where, again, we've been talking about this in the context of South Africa. People are moving to a greener form of electricity, not because of any idealized view of, of wanting to save the environment, but even in your own home, Cobus, you've gone solar because you're so fed up with dealing with ESCOM and the, and the power outages that you've had. And so there's been this green revolution in South Africa that nobody's talking about, probably powered by Chinese solar panels, is my guess, and Chinese batteries, is my guess, right? And, you, you know, but it's out of necessity and it's out of innovation, and that, to me, is where I think we should be focusing our conversation on. And all of this highfalutin rhetoric coming out of places like the U.S., Europe, and China about green belt and roads and just transitions, whatever. Because you see that principles truly are subject to circumstance. And like value-based transition. Yeah, you know, like all of, the, all of this, this, all of these talking points, there's so much of, of, of it you know, kind of particularly coming from the West, there's so much to do with norm setting. You know, it's like, oh, we need to set norms, we need to set standards. You know, it's like, what standards are you talking about? You know, it's like... But they need to live by those standards themselves. Yeah, which is the last thing they want to do, yeah. Because again, if, you know, when I hear the Canadians, the Australians, the Norwegians, and even the Americans talking about green, and you're like, these are literally the largest hydrocarbon exporters in the world. And they risible. Win. It's I, risible. It is like Canada, Australia, and, and, and Norway's kind of claim on anything should be cancelled because they can't claim anything. Insidious yeah. is like what it's, it is. It's laughable. It really is. And they, but for some reason, they all get a pass. Nobody calls out the Australians and the Norwegians and the Canadians for this. Nobody does. I don't understand it. How dare they show up at any of these climate conferences with any kind of credibility and authority? And I mean, we're talking Norway is what the seventh or eighth largest oil producer in the world. 
I mean, it's like, and yet when, if, if the Saudis showed up at one of these conferences and said, we want to be green, which they do, they're now talking about going green, but everybody laughs at the Saudis, but they never laugh at the Australians and the Canadians. Don't understand it. I don't understand it. And it's just something that is so frustrating. And what you're seeing in Germany and what you're seeing in China now is that principles truly are subject to circumstance. And I think that the COP27 that's coming up in November, the focus should be on holding these governments accountable for their garbage rhetoric. That's what I think the developing world should do, saying, stop preaching to us. Stop telling us what we need to do. I loved it when the Tanzanian environment minister told Greta Thunberg to shut up. I thought that was a moment that was really, really important. Because I think developing well, countries... Greta, she's, she's the one the one who's actually saying the right stuff, though. Maybe. In, like, in but, those countries. But, but again, <laughs> I think there's just an exhaustion in many parts of the global south for the lecturing. There's and an this, exhaustion and, and, of being preached and at. And when they I don't think. even live um, by the standards themselves. That's the part that I just don't understand. So anyway, we boy, we really deviated on that one. I mean, we're going to do a lot of climate stuff because climate's one of these issues now that is just touching absolutely everything that is happening. And and again, I just, I mean, I love that 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 trend that's underway in South Africa now that everybody's going solar. Uh, who those who can afford it? Yeah, but course. it's 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 the people that's who can right. afford it, and you know, and that's that's the problem. But, but it's a large population, though, nonetheless, and the price of solar panels is coming down. Quite a bit. Again, most likely thanks to China on that part. Yeah, yeah. I think it's you know kind of this. It's also in in part thanks to the government has has kind of moved finally to start a, a series of regulatory reforms that make it easier to do things like feed electricity back into the grid, for example, by private private generators. So, you know, for a long time, the grid was essentially was essentially designed around the monopoly of ESCOM, and the monopoly of ESCOM was, was useful for apartheid government and post-apartheid governments as a form of political leverage. Um, and now, finally, like the, the crisis is so acute that they that they're actually like allowing in private and, and you know kind of non-state generators. So so that that is also helping to change the landscape slowly. Let's very quickly any stories that you're looking on for next week. I'm going to be keeping my eye on the Kenyan elections just to see how that plays out. Of course, we're also going to keep a watch on whether Xi Jinping does go to Saudi Arabia. I am, of course, very skeptical of that. I encourage everybody to follow Wang Cheng, Wang Cheng, so that you can see his Twitter feed because so far he has been right on the mark on this issue. Any stories that you're following for next week? I am going to be following, particularly with the help of Giraud, because he knows so much more than, than I do about these issues. Um, the, I'm going to be following the, the, the um, outcomes of, the, of this cobalt mediation process in the DRC to the extent that, we can, that, that anything will, be, will come out publicly. Um, you know, because, because it touches on so many of these other issues, not least, you know, kind of about these issues of... of how much power these resource-rich countries have to to make you know to, to, to actually to move up the value chain and what the, what it actually takes to do it, um, you know. So just in relation to Indonesia that I mentioned before, one of the one of the factors there is that Indonesia has, has a stable electricity supply, which means it can then force outside governments to refine or outside players or outside companies to to refine there as as they have done with Chinese 
actors. But the the sad reality there is that many of those of of those power plants are were built by Chinese companies, and most of them are coal fired. So you know, so there is this kind of interesting thing where the the climate solution ends up depending again on coal fired electricity. Um, you know, so so it's just it's just it's a really really complicated process. You know, um, and, and the DRC plays this huge role in it. So so I'll be I'll be following that. Okay, well, let's leave the conversation there. If you'd like to follow these stories in detail, we've got it all over on the ChinaGlobalSouth.com website. Also, you can subscribe to receive our daily brief. We want to give a big shout out to our subscribers. If you go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe, you can join them in getting the newsletter every day, and you'll have access to four or almost 5,000 articles now on the site. It's a great resource for researchers and for analysts who are trying to kind of sort through all of this stuff. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. And also a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support the show and just the work that we're doing, we really appreciate it. Go to Patreon.com slash China Africa Project. So that'll do it for this episode. Kobus and I will be back again next week, and Jiro hopefully will be feeling better. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGSProject and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>